Thanks, Kathy. What a great reading it is. I'd love you to uh, keep that open. Um, thanks for reading it so um, beautifully for us, Kathy. Uh, so I'm going to pray for us and um, we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are there and that you want your son Jesus to be honoured tonight. Father, would you help us to have open hearts and open minds? Come by your Holy Spirit and take this ancient letter and make it live in us. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I wanted to start tonight with a little bit of self-revelation, something about me, uh, which I'm guessing that you wouldn't guess about me. It's, uh, it's something that is very close to my heart, and uh, that something is basketball. I actually played basketball for about 10 years, uh, and I know I'm an intimidating physical presence. I'm the sort of tall, stick-like figure that you would imagine plays a lot of basketball, but uh, it's true. I uh, played basketball for about, uh, about 10 years, absolutely loved the game, and um, because I started liking the game in the 90s, which, you know, <coughs> is increasingly a long time ago, uh, in the 90s, uh, I had uh, somebody that I was always looking up to, and um, I dug this up uh, when I was looking this week, and I wanted to play this for you because, you know, it's, it's really special. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I'd like to play you the, the remainder of it, but my wife told me only show a minute of the, I mean, for the 30 seconds of this. There's more to go. I want to sing on to be like Mike. Does anyone know who Mike is? Michael Jordan. Okay, very good. Yes. Yeah, great. Great answer. Good answer. Uh, so, uh, so Michael Jordan, and um, yep, obviously I'm white. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not six foot six, um, and I can't dunk in any way. Um, but, you know, as, as a young man playing basketball, be like Mike. Uh, that was kind of on my, on my radar the whole time. Uh, be like Mike, e- even though there was absolutely no resemblance whatsoever. Uh, and then I started to find out about what happened to Mike after he won six championships and basically dominated everything. Uh, after, after Mike left, left the game, he, he came back and bought a couple of teams, which went really badly under uh, his leadership. Uh, he had an affair and uh, got divorced from his wife, cost him $168 million dollars. Uh, he got in trouble with the police for gambling and basically lost all his friends because he can't do anything without competition. So when you say you want to be like Mike, you kind of have to be a little bit careful. Uh, There was this great quote I found uh, this week from a lady called uh, Kelly Scaletta. Stars are flawed as we are, and sometimes idolising them blinds us to that fact. Maybe we shouldn't try being like anyone. Sure, there are things we can learn from anyone who reaches such a pinnacle of success. There's nothing that says we have to take all or nothing with players. Appreciate what made them great. Now, now, Kelly's take is to say, hey, uh, people that we follow, people that we idolise, actually aren't all good. They're generally flawed. And so I guess I want to ask you, do you have a flawed hero? Do you have a flawed hero? Someone that you're looking up to who's actually flawed. And while you think about that, the answer is yes, you do. Anyone that you look up to is flawed. Uh, That's the nature of our human walk. Uh, We're all going to be failed heroes. And uh, and so in some sense, uh, everybody does have a flawed hero. Although if you've got a a real one, I'd I'd love to know who that is. Tonight, I want to suggest we're going to do two things. So here's my plan laid out for you. I want to tell you there is someone that you should be like. You should be like the one you worship. Be like the one you worship. And the challenge is, don't be the one you worship. Be like the one you worship and don't be the one you worship. 
pretty simple. But we're going to dive in and uh, have a look at, uh, at Philippians chapter 2. So if you've got it there, please open it up. That would be really great. Uh, as I was um, uh, preparing for this talk this week, uh, there was a discovery, I think it was this week, that was made in Lyon in France. Uh, they were digging for an apartment block, just putting down the, uh, the foundations. And as they dug down, they came across the most incredible Roman ruin of the last 50 years. Bummer for the developers, wonderful for the archaeologists. So what they found was a whole town that had been destroyed by fire about 1,700 years ago. There it is, all preserved. So underneath the town, there it was waiting to be uncovered. It existed the whole time, no one knew, until they dug down, and then they found this history that had always been there. What we're going to do is we're going to see that there's something very precious in our gathering here tonight that we need to uncover. So have a look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose was what it used to say. I've gone to my, own, my old 1984 translation. Uh, being one in spirit and of one mind. So here's the thing that, uh, that Paul says. He actually tells us to uncover the unity that exists. This is quite a different thought. So normally if something's going wrong, you'd say, okay, everyone, we need to get together. Hold hands, sing kumbaya, and we'll create some unity together. Paul is saying something different. He's actually saying there's a unity that exists in the church. It's a unity with Christ from his love and in the Spirit. You see, God formed the church. He did it through his son Jesus with his love, and he has placed his Spirit in the hearts of everyone here who's a believer. So here's the crazy thing. Whether you know each other or not, there's actually a unity in this church that's created by Jesus. So our job isn't to manufacture unity, but rather to uncover the unity that exists. It's a pretty crazy thought, isn't it? So we don't just uncover it, though. We then need to express it. And he tells us how. He tells us by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit. Now, that's pretty cool. We've been given his love. We're supposed to have the same love. We've been given his spirit. We're supposed to be one in spirit. We're supposed to be with Christ and be like-minded with him. So how does knowing the unity already exists in Jesus change living it out? So in other words, if we've got a problem, rather than going, let's work really hard at finding some common ground, instead we say, we have common ground because of our common faith in Jesus. Now, live it out is the challenge. Okay? Rather than let's create artificial unity, we need to uncover the unity that exists and then live it out. All right, what do you think about this bloke? Better question, what does he think about himself? Uh, sorry? What does he think? He looks good. He's thinking he's looking pretty good, I, I suspect. Whatever we think about him, he's definitely thinking that uh, he's pretty good. Uh, I think this is the word I came up with, conceit, which is the sense that uh, you think you're pretty good, irrespective of what anyone else thinks. He's conceited, uh, but I don't think he cares whether I think that or not. Have a look at uh, what Paul writes to the Philippians about conceit in verses 3 to 5. 
He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So Paul says something pretty straightforward. He says that we're to do absolutely nothing out of selfish ambition. Easy, right? What's selfish ambition? Selfish ambition is my desire to put myself first ahead of you. I want to be the top of the pile. There was an ad a while ago for, um, for PlayStation where it just had a, a human mass of people with people trying to climb up the, t- up the people to get to the top. Does anyone remember that ad? That, I think, is selfish ambition. I'm going to be top of the pile, and I'm literally going to step on your head to get there. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And then he says, instead of that, value others above yourselves. See, why would I step on your head? I'd step on your head because, well, not your heads, but metaphorically, I'd step on your heads because I've decided you're not as valuable as I am. I'm really important. That's clear, isn't it? I'm really important. I'm really important. You're not as important as me. Therefore, I can use you because you don't have enough value. Now, we're never as blunt as that, are we? But there are people who we do not treat as having the same value as us. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. And then he says, you actually need to reorientate your value of how you think about the people in the world around you. Value them above yourselves. And then he says, to look out for their interests ahead of yours. And I, the perfect example of that, I think, is, uh, is the lifeguards. It's a blue, sunny day. The beach, the water. I'm there to relax and not think about anything else. And what are they doing? They're in their beautiful red and yellow uh, shirts. And they're there looking out for my interests as I go into the water. They're not having a swim. They're watching out for me. I think it's the perfect example of people whose commitment is to the interests of others. Well, it's pretty straightforward, isn't it? No selfish ambition. High value on the other. Look to their interests ahead of yours. We could end the sermon there and we'd be doing just fine, I think, in terms of challenge. Here's the thing, don't be the one you worship. Don't be the one you worship. Don't put yourself first. Don't value yourself more highly than others. Don't look out to only your interest. Don't be the one you worship. So here's the question, where do you look first? Where's, who's the person that you're most concerned about? And, and I think the challenge is, oh look, when I'm in my right mind, of course I'm thinking of you before me. I'm a lovely person. What happens when you're tired? What happens when you've come back from that place where other people were treating you of low esteem, where other people didn't value you right, where you felt more powerless than you do maybe in this situation? So you come home from that situation and you're lovely and sacrificial and servant-hearted at home. Is that that what happens? It isn't, is it? We bring home the angst and whatever from home and we look after ourselves first. Where do you look first? And where is it hardest to value others above yourself? So in that place that's tough, are you going, this other person who maybe is giving me grief, I'm going to value them as more important than me? Well, I can tell you how much I value them. It's pretty striking, isn't it? Value them as more important than you. Now, as I look at you, some of you looking back at me skeptically going, why should I do that? Can I remind you we have question and answer after this sermon, and you may want to ask me that question uh, afterwards. 
So don't be the one you worship. That's our first point. Uh, one of the things I really love is watching kids mirror their parents. Kids marry their parents. So, uh, oh, she's just like her mum, yeah? Oh, he's just like his dad. And it almost inevitably is, he's just like his dad is the, oh, she's just like her mum. That's the, that's the up one, right? Um, or alternatively, um, in, the, uh, in the parenting conversation, it's, um, well, this isn't for me. That's you, right? This, whatever that behavior is, that's you. That's your thing. Uh, so kids imitating their parents. Paul gives us someone much better to imitate. Paul gives us someone much better to imitate here. Have a look with me at verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, not something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here's the picture. Here's the picture of Jesus. What does it tell us? He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't say, it's mine. I have this power. I'm going to use it. He didn't do that. Instead, he poured his life out. He said, I'm going to pour myself out for others. I'm going to put you before me. I'm going to take the nature of a servant. And I mean, Jesus literally poured himself out. Didn't he do the feet washing thing? Do you remember that? The dirtiest, scungiest job. He literally poured water in and washed their dirty feet. He embodied what it meant to empty himself. And he humbled himself even to death. We've got one of these beautiful songs that says, hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. The one who spoke creation into being was nailed to a cross by his creatures. Is that humble? It's got to be the very definition, doesn't it? He humbled himself, even, I think it's kind of a throw up your hands, even to death on a cross. You see, the Romans thought that the cross was such an appalling disgrace that it wasn't the symbol for Christianity for 300 years. They couldn't bring themselves to say, we're with the crucified guy. Yeah, we're going to, put, we're going to have an earring or, or a necklace that's a cross because it was such a disgrace to be crucified. And here's Jesus who suffered death on a cross. It's extraordinary, isn't it? That humility. So that much is clear. But I want to show you that Jesus' true identity is actually in the details here in this passage. And that there are some Turns of phrase in here that are quite difficult, but if we spend some time with them, we'll actually be able to win a whole lot of value from them. So it says there, have a look with me uh, in verse 6. It says, who being in very nature God. So, so what, does that, what does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus is equal to God. Jesus is equal to God. He's of equal value to God. And being of equal value to God, he didn't seek his own way. Uh, has anyone seen Bruce Almighty? Right? Take the power of God, give it to a mere mortal, and see what happens. What happens in Bruce Almighty when Bruce is given God's power? He goes burko, doesn't he? All for, for him, including tsunamis in Japan and all sorts of other things. He, he's, just, he's totally committed to number one. And so here's the thing, Jesus actually had that power, not in a fake movie kind of scenario. 
He is equal with God. He is the one to whom every knee should bow. And what did he do? Well, he didn't use it to his own advantage. He didn't, he didn't seek to get his own way. That in and of itself is pretty humble, isn't it? And Jesus didn't sin where Adam did. So remember what, what, the, what the serpent said to Adam. Adam, Eve, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. Don't you want to do it? Good fruit. Be like God. Be equal with God. And what did Adam and Eve do? We're, we're, we're on. We're in. Let's have that. Because they wanted for themselves. Jesus had that and didn't use it to his own advantage. So what do we learn? Well, the basic point here is Jesus never sinned. Jesus is God. Jesus being in very nature God. Jesus is God. What about this one? He made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Does that mean that Jesus stopped being God and instead became a wise teacher? When it says he made himself nothing, what does that mean? Well, first thing, this is quite remarkable. Okay, I want you to think with me about this. He made himself nothing. Where, if, if, if Jesus was nothing, where would the Jesus story start? Where would the Jesus story start? Where would you start Jesus' story? Where was Jesus born? Oh, come on, play along. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. You're going Nazareth, Bethlehem, Nazareth, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. You remember manger, cows, sheep, stinky place. Yeah, you with me? Star, magi, eventually, a bit later, non-continuity of story. Okay, so here's the thing, here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. When, when Jesus was born, we think that's the start of the story. But if that's the start of the story, how can a baby have emptied themselves? Well, Parents know how babies empty themselves, but that's not the point, okay? For Jesus to have emptied himself, he must have existed prior to his arrival in the manger. Are you with me? In order to empty himself, he must have existed before. It's a trippy thought, but the Word of God, the Son of God, has an existence prior to the stable in Bethlehem. Crazy. To have emptied himself, how did he do it? He did this by becoming a servant. By becoming a servant. So here's the thing. If you're God, who needs to serve you? If you're God, who needs to serve you? So go, everyone, good answer, great answer. If you're God, who needs to serve you? Everyone. Who do you need to serve? Have a guess. No one. You don't need to serve anyone because that's the nature of being God. So when we say Jesus became a servant, we go, of course he did. Yeah, 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 Jesus became a servant. I'm saying to you, that's crazy. The pre-existent son of God became a servant. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable. Jesus chose to leave the glory that he had for all eternity to become our servant. It's incredible. Glorified by armies, angels of armies. At the right hand of the Father, he said, I am going to go to a stinky manger in backwards Bethlehem as a babe. Extraordinary. Made in human likeness. That's got to be a problem, doesn't it? Made in human likeness. Doesn't he want to say something stronger than that? Why does he say made in human likeness? I want to tell you that he was truly human. He was truly human. And 
There was something about Jesus that was different from everybody else. Peter lived with Jesus, and he writes in his letter, he writes, he committed no sin and no deceit was found on his lips. Jesus lived with him, I mean, Peter lived with Jesus for three years. You could live with me for a week. You would come up with a different conclusion about me. Peter lived with him for three years. He said, he committed no sin and no deceit was found on his lips. Peter said, this was a man who never sinned. That is unlike all the rest of humanity. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard. So he was truly, so, he was truly human, but without sin. So when it says likeness, likeness here means more, not a trick or illusion. So he's actually human, but he's in the likeness of human flesh in the sense that he's not the same as everybody else has ever lived who has sin in them. Do you understand? So it's the likeness. It's not a trick or an illusion. Jesus is a real man, unspoilt by sin. Why does that matter? He was found in appearance as a man. There's one of those problematic statements again. Found in appearance as a man, he became obedient to death. And again, we kind of go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, like, who's thinking of Jesus without having one of these in the background, right? Of course, we all know the end of the story. Jesus dies on the cross, right? So we go, of course, he became obedient to death. But I, I want to just quickly run through some things. Here's the first thing. God cannot die. You can't be God and die. That's the whole point. God cannot die. Second thing. Humans cannot die for the sins of others. I, I, I love my kids, right? I'd do anything for my kids. If it really came down to it, I would be prepared to probably die for my kids. But what I can't do is I can't take their sin and die for their sin. Do you know why? I've got some sin to be dying for on my own. Very regrettably, but true. God says the punishment for sin is death. I deserve to die for my sin. So I can't take somebody else's sin. You with me on the logic of this? So God can't die. I can't die for the sins of another. But here's the thing. Humans can die. Why does all this matter? Come with me. Jesus is God incarnate, God in flesh. Why does that matter? He's the only one who can die on the cross for the sins of others. Jesus had no sin himself, so he didn't need to die. You with me? He was divine, which meant he could take on the sins of the whole world, but he was really human, so he could die. Messing with your mind yet? It means that Jesus has to be who he is, otherwise we can't be saved. Now, if you think that's easy to understand, it's not really. And Christians have stuffed this up for the last 2,000 years, trying to work out how does this hang together? How can he be God and man? So I'll give you a little, a little graphy thing here. So on this axis here, man, God. On this axis, eternal, created. Okay? And I'm going to plot on some of the ways that Christians have stuffed this up. Okay? Uh, number one, Ebionism. I'll, I'll test you on this later. Okay? Ebionism. Basically, he's a man and he was created. So what is he? Well, this is my reduction. Okay? He's Gandhi. He's just another good teacher, right? On the other end, uh, the Docetus said that he only looked like a man. He's really just God pretending to be a human. I'll bring that into our language. Superman. Okay? He's not an actual man. He's from the planet Krypton. Okay? He's a superhero. All right? Or how about this, Arianism, 
Okay? Basically, Arius said there's a time when he was not. In other words, in some way, Jesus is a created being. Okay? Batman begins. You with me? You with me? Okay, good, good. Okay, all right. How about this one? Adoptionism. Adoptionism is where we say that basically <laughs> there is the mind of God in a bod. Okay? Basically, God sends his holy mind and it occupies a body on earth. So it's not, there's no unity. There's a body and there's the mind of God. And, and I, I thought of inside out. Okay, all of these are wrong. Okay, all of these are wrong. What we believe is something orthodox. We talk about the incarnate Son of God, and you're like, wow, what does that mean? Well, it, it holds all these things together. It says that he is truly man and truly God. Truly man and truly God. It says that he is eternal. He existed before the beginning of time, and he had a moment where he was born in a stable. The incredible truth that we have in our scriptures is that he's the incarnate Son of God. What, what does that mean? What does the incarnate, incarnation mean? I think we see it in that storm on the Sea of Galilee, right? What was Jesus doing in the back of the boat? Can anyone remember? What was he doing in the back of the boat? He was sleeping. The reason he's sleeping is because he's actually a man. Superman never needs to sleep, right? Jesus was sleeping because he needed to. When he stands up and rebukes the wind and the waves, who has that authority? Only God gets to speak to the created order. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Fully God and fully man. That's what the incarnation means. And that's what's revealed in here. See, we need to be like the one we worship. And the challenge is, do you have a Jesus worthy of worship? Do you have a Jesus worthy of worship? Is the one that you are worshipping the one God revealed to us? Or one that you made up all on your own? Be like the one you worship. Uh, does anyone know what happens when you fall off your paddleboard? Which I think is what you're supposed to do with a paddleboard, with one of these on. What happens if you fall into the water with one of these on? You lift it back up again. You go down into the water, you pop back up again. That's pretty good. Have a listen to the way Jesus popped back up again. That's incredibly uh, understated, isn't it? Have a look at verses 9 to 11. So he was, he was humbled to death on a cross. So Jesus died in the most humiliating circumstances ever. And verse 9 tells us, Therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What, what is happening here is something extraordinary. Jesus suffered humiliation. He chose to leave heaven. That's humiliation, I think. Live as a real human being. Then die on the cross. That was his self-choice. But, God would not leave him dead. In fact, he raised him and exalted him to the highest place. That's what we're told. So in Jesus, we have a model. Be like the one you worship. Here's what it says in 1 Peter 5. All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, that's the down, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Isn't that great? You choose to be humble. He will do the lifting up. Here's what happened. Jesus was given a name, a name that was above every name. What do we know from this? This is awesome. Jesus will be worshipped. Jesus will be worshipped. And, and the incredible thing about this, he'll be given a name above every name, and it says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so you think, well, 
we've been singing worship to God, so that's pretty good. We're ready to bow the knee. But everybody one day will bow the knee to Jesus. They'll do it willingly, Christians. I'm encouraging you all to do it now, okay? Let's bow the knee to Jesus, okay? Because on that day, we'll rejoice when he comes. But if we choose to say no to Jesus, here's what this scripture says. Everyone will bow the knee because one day you'll see the unveiled power of our awesome Savior and you'll just fall down and worship. You, you won't be able to help yourself. Every tongue will confess him as Lord. And Isaiah told us that this would happen. 700 years before Jesus, uh, he said, Turn to me, God speaking through Isaiah. Turn to me and be saved. See, this, see if this sounds familiar. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth is uttered in all integrity, a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. Here's what I want you to see. That matches up entirely with the passage in Philippians, except the one who's being exalted is Jesus. In the Old Testament, it says, God is the Lord. In the New Testament, it says, Jesus Christ is, here's the name. The name Jesus is given is that of Lord. Jesus will be worshipped as God. It's incredible. The world tells us to be like Mike. Well, whatever. <laughs> You, you, you won't want to be like Mike, but the world will tell you something that you need to be like. The church, God himself says, you know what? You need to be like Jesus. And, and I don't have a really catchy song. Actually, we've got lots of catchy songs, don't we, for being like Jesus. So here's the thing. You can be like the world and be like Mike. And on that day when Jesus returns, you who are standing proud will be humbled. Or we can lower ourselves on the day when Jesus returns, we'll be exalted. We will be lifted up. Not because you're great or excellent, but because God loves you and will have you follow the same pattern of your Savior. That's extraordinary. That's exciting. And so we suffer as those who know the future of the Lord Jesus and his followers. So while it's hard today to put others first, I'm looking forward to the day when Jesus will bring the great reversal and he will exalt those who have humbled themselves and humble those who have lifted themselves up. So how do we engage with the world? Often people say, well, what's the application? What should I do? I want to tell you tonight, it's a way of thinking and I want you to think it into your spot where you are. When we're trying to serve the world, I want us to be people who, and you'll see the difference here, there's a blank square. I want to be people who do nothing out of selfish ambition, but value others above ourselves, look to their interests, because I'm following a crucified saviour who one day will lift me up. Awesome. That's how I want you to serve the world tomorrow. In the church, I want you to do one more step. I want you to start by looking, uncovering the unity that actually exists. Then I want you to do nothing out of vain, vain conceit. I want you to value others above yourselves. I want you to look to their interests before your own because you follow a crucified saviour who one day will lift up those who humble themselves. Here's the bottom line. Be like the one you worship. Don't be the one you worship. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Jesus, your Son, is awesome and exalted and amazing. We thank you for his humility. We thank you, Father, that you wouldn't let it rest when he was humiliated and killed on the cross. Father, we thank you that you raised him, 
you vindicated him, you showed that sin's punishment was paid and death could not hold him down. Father, we pray that we might lift him up, that we might know what it is to follow the one whose path of humility ended in exaltation. Lord, help us to put ourselves lower, to lift your son higher. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Uh, I'm going to do Q&A first, Jeff, but thank you. All right. Uh, Q&A time. Now, I think this has the potential to be really helpful if you're ready to engage with me. So uh, ask away. What questions do you have for me from that? Yes, go. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yeah, no, fantastic. So in the, in the slide, I've got to repeat it for the podcast, in the slide that had Isaiah 45 and then Philippians 2, I had in the Old Testament the capital letters L-O-R-D, but in the New Testament, it was only capital L-O-R-D. What's going on there? Is it something to do? Yeah. So here's the, here's the background. When you get capital letters in the Old Testament, it's representing the name of God, Yahweh. Okay? So that might be something new or something you already know. So when you see capital L-O-R-D, it's the name of God. So it's actually, God actually has a name. So we think his name is God. In the Old Testament, he says, my name is Yahweh. The... Old Testament Jews would never say his name. So they'd always say Jehovah, or they might say the Lord. Okay? And so out of reverence, we generally in our Christian Bibles don't translate Yahweh into Yahweh. We write Lord, which sounds like I'm telling you some sort of secret insider knowledge, but that, that's what's going on. So that's the capitals. Now, in Greek, okay, they're not going to write Yahweh because it's Hebrew letters, but they have the title Lord. Okay, And so they write Lord, because New Testament is written in Greek. So they write Lord, kurios actually is the word in Greek. Okay, So they write Lord to say the most exalted and highest position that they can give that echoes Lord, Yahweh, in the Old Testament. So Jesus is going to be given the name, the exalted name of God. That's what every knee will bow down to. Does that make sense? Great question. Really good. Really good question. Someone else? Yes. Yes. Yeah, brilliant question. So if Jesus, uh, if Jesus was truly a man, but he never had any sin, could Jesus have lived forever because he didn't have sin? It's a really great question. Um, I'm going to offer some speculative answers because the Bible does not tell me at all, but it's a wonderful question. Here's the thing. Jesus matures physically. So he was born as a baby. He came into the world literally from a womb into the manger. As a man crucified, he was obviously bigger than when he was born. So there has to be some physical development in Jesus' life, uh, which suggests to me he's aging. That seems to be real, okay? So he's actually patterning the life of humanity. Now, I think that the, the, the really interesting part of this is um, he was truly human. See, it's not the fake. 
And so when Jesus takes flesh, it's real flesh, and so it actually ages, as opposed to Superman, who would never get old, right? Who would never change, although he does actually grow up, doesn't he? I don't know about Superman. Anyway, forget about Superman. I'm talking about Jesus. So, so it appears to me that the reality of his humanity means that he's getting older and older. Okay? Would he die? I imagine it's possible for his physical flesh to wear out and cause his life to end, which would be a function of the breakdown of cells as opposed to the cost of sin in his life. Okay? Yeah? So my speculative answer is, we don't know. And the reason we're not told is, what did Jesus come to do? He came to die. So Jesus' body was never built to live to the age of 70 because God, in his foreknowledge, knew that his son would die a crucified death. So uh, my answer is, he had a real body which aged. In theory, if you cast it out, in theory... He probably the body would have got to the point where it was no longer able to live, but it would not have been a punishment for sin. And it remains speculative because there's no possible future that didn't end in the death of Jesus on the cross. Good question, though. Great question. Someone else? Yeah. Yes. 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 Um, there's, a really, uh, there's a really helpful uh, song which I think says, The Father turns, Turned His Face Away. Um, I think that the Son... So it's, it's really, really interesting, okay? There's, there's a number of things that kind of come in here. Did, was the cry from the cross, God, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? Was it a real cry? The couple of things going on. First of all, um, God is present everywhere in his creation. With me so far? So on the mount where the cross is, is God present? Stay with me. I'm going to guess the answer is yes. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We imagine a physical separation, right? God's run away from me. What was happening to Jesus at that time was Jesus was being told, we're told in, in, um, uh, in Corinthians, that God laid on him the sins of the whole world. Okay? So what happened is the sinless son of God received the sins of the whole world on him in his body, at which point the favor of God that his son has always enjoyed from before all creation, the favor of God was turned into the wrath of God on his son experientially, because he was a real bodily person, experientially, the son then suffers the face of his father turning from love to wrath. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't think it's actually that he ran away from him. It's that he turned his face of wrath to the sin that his son was bearing. And so there was an experiential uh, abandonment in the sense that he was no longer feeling, I think at that point, the love of God, but was experiencing the wrath of God on the sin that he carried. Does that make sense? So it's not that God created a bubble in his omnipresence that Jesus was dropped into at that point, but experientially, the change from love to wrath meant that he felt forsaken, really, truly experienced forsakenness from his father who'd only ever loved him. Doesn't that make Easter even more incredible? 
Any other questions? Yeah, go. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really helpful. Uh, any, t- any tips? Uh, any tips on how to respect people who it's difficult to respect in our workplace? Guys, if we're not talking about this, I haven't preached it well, so I'm really pleased that you asked that question, Bill. So what tips do we have? How do I respect someone who, in the end, I don't respect? That's, I think, is that the question? Okay, all right, yeah. So, so the first thing I think we've got to do, there, there are some people who'd say, um, say the President of the United States, right? Okay. Uh, you salute the position, but not the person. That's some people's answer, right? So I'm saluting the president. I'm not saluting you, insert name of president here, who we won't disrespect at this point in time. Um, so, so some people can say, look, I'm just going to respect the fact that you're a human and just leave it at that, even though I know that you're not as good as me or whatever, okay? I, I think at some level that's cheating. I think we need to do much harder heart work, right? And I think the answer is to fall on our knees in prayer and go, God, we suck at this. It's on podcast, isn't it? Okay, well, but here's the thing, okay? We suck at this, right? I have people, I genuinely don't think are worthy of my respect, say. Okay, let's hyper, hyper. I've got a friend who thinks this way. Okay, what would I say to my friend? I would say to my friend, ask God to be doing work on how you see these people. I, for a while, I used to walk, walk down King Street when I was at, um, in Newtown. Uh, I used to live in Enmore, and I used to walk up all of King Street to Moore College every, every day. And what I decided to do, I don't know what happened, but what I decided to do was to say, God loves you, not out loud, I'm not that weird, but to every, every face, every face I saw as I walked down King Street, every single face as I walked down King Street, God loves you. Look them in the eye and in my head say, God loves you. Mind-blowingly difficult, because I've got all these prejudices, did you know? I've decided the people who God should love and, and shouldn't love and and when I made it my habit, walking along King Street, just go, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. It changed me. So what I want to say is, I think we've built a wall of prejudice around our heart. We've decided we are better than others. And what we need to do is God go, we're terrible at this. Have mercy on me, soften my heart, open my eyes to the humanity and the value of others that apparently Jesus died for. They're so valuable in his eyes that he died for them, but I can't esteem them enough to love them and be polite to them. Just checking in, God. Just want to tell you I'm better than you, and I've decided that they're not really very valuable. Hope that's okay for you. Oh, Lord, forgive me. So that would be my answer. I think it's a journey, mate, and I don't want to cheat. I just want to say we need to acknowledge, we need to fess up to God and say we suck at it, and we need to ask him to change our hearts and to actually see the value he has on others. Yeah, Ali, question? Yeah. Yes, yeah, really helpful. Is there ever a time where you should walk away? Um, the answer is yes. It, 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 this is not, the answer isn't become a thoughtless doormat that gets beaten up in every place where there's a strong, arrogant, nasty human. And I've spoken recently about domestic violence, so let's speak very clearly about that. Walk away. Be safe. No problems. Here's the thing. Don't walk away with hatred and enmity. That's so much harder. 
But be safe. Walk away. There's nothing unchristian in making yourself safe. The difficulty is, the difficulty is, you, we, we often will walk away with hatred and enmity in our hearts. And I don't know. That just, we, we just have to fess up. God, I'm. It's, this is impossible for me at the moment. I need to be safe first, and it's impossible. I can't even go there. And down the track, start a journey with Jesus where you say, my starting position is I will not forgive them and work from there. So I would say, absolutely, Ali, we must. There's no excuse for being unsafe. There's no Christian virtue in that. If you need to be safe, walk away. However, don't let it harden your heart in anger and resentment. Uh, there's much more to talk about. You can come and find me and we can chat some more. But that, that would be the, the general shape of that. I'm going to stop because Jeff will jump up. and uh, That's been really valuable. Thank you for asking those questions. Um, the short answer is, uh, be like the one you worship. Don't be the one you worship.